Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today I'm joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and Fordham alum, Loretta Tofany. She's here to discuss her career, some of her more notable articles, and offer advice about journalism as a career. Good morning. Good morning. I want to jump right into your award-winning articles. Let's start with the article you wrote uh, for the Washington Post that led to you winning a Pulitzer. It was a series of articles about gang rapes inside a Maryland jail. Is that correct? It is correct. So how did you come across that story? At the time, I was a reporter at the Post covering the courthouse beat, and I was uh, looking in the courthouse for a story for that day, of course. And I was wandering in and out of courtrooms, seeing what was going on. And I I happened to be in a courtroom where there was a sentencing going on. And the judge said to the lawyer, a woman said to the judge, Your Honor, my client was gang raped in the county jail. And looking at the young man, he was only about 18, I really felt terrible. And afterwards, I went up to the judge and asked how Often he had heard of men getting raped in the jail. And he said, oh, it happens all the time. And he didn't seem to regard it as, you know, a terrible pressing problem, which also troubled me. And like so, it was the same old, same old. Like same, he hears exactly, this all the time. Mm-hmm. exactly. I, but it did trouble me. And so I started asking more questions of judges, of jail guards, of uh, people who had been in the jail. And I framed the idea for the stories and talked to my editors about doing the stories on men getting raped in jail. And then it required about another nine months of work before the series was completed. Now, when you went into it, Loretta, did you know it was going to be this deep of a dive of a type of story? I knew that it would require getting a lot of documents, like the medical records of the men who had been raped. And I knew that it would require a lot of interviews, both with the men who had been raped and the men who had raped them. So I I knew it was a deep dive, which is exactly why my editors at first did not want me to do the story. They wanted, you know, the constant flow of stories every day or every other day to fill up the newspaper, which is what we were ostensibly there for. But it was very, very important to me. Um, And actually, as I got further into the story, it became even more important because as I interviewed the rape victims, I came to realize that most of the rape victims had not been convicted of any crime. They were simply in jail on um, charged with misdemeanors like drunk driving and shoplifting while they were in jail just because they didn't have enough money for bond. And then while they were awaiting trial, uh, men who had been convicted of crimes like armed robbery or murder um, raped them. And the jail really did nothing to stop the rapes. So what started out as, you know, something that was maybe happening to men who I thought had been convicted of crimes actually became a better story because they were innocent men who were being gang raped. And so I, you know, I had a lot of passion. I really had to do this story and I found ways to get time to do it. Although 
I wasn't always supposed to be spending my time on these stories. So one of the things that you said was you spoke to both the victims and the offenders. How did you get the offenders to talk? I got the offenders' names in most cases from the victims. The victims knew precisely who had raped them. They could give you the six names just like that. And so I I looked up those names in court records and I found out which prisons they had been transferred to 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 finish out their sentences for murder or armed robbery. I visited them in the prisons and I said to them, you know, hi, I'm a reporter for the Washington Post. I'm writing a story about the Prince George's County Jail in Maryland. I know you were there. And could you tell me about the conditions there? And we would go from kind of the terrible conditions to, and could you tell me about that rape of Ralph Bunch Gordon on this day? And then usually there would be a long pause. And then I would, you know, come in with some reassurance, like, you know, I'm doing this as a reporter to explain why there are rapes in jail. And, you know, I have nothing to do with police. I I am just writing the story so people understand that this is what happens when the jail conditions are really terrible and why it happens. And then usually they would loosen up and start talking about it bit by bit. And um, by the end of the interview, you know, sometimes it would take an hour, I had all the details of the rape, all the really gory details, and many of them we put in the newspaper. It was always an, it was an admission over and over again of having raped a person. And then the stories were done as case studies. So we'd have a victim, we'd have the rapist admitting the rape and the medical record. So it was very clear documented evidence throughout the series. Loretta, what were some of the attackers' justification? So one, Francis Harper said it best, you bite or you get bit. So if you're not, you know, the tough guy who's going to show strength and force then maybe you'll be the victim. and So they have to be the bully so that they don't get bullied. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Wow. Yeah. And so Maryland's prosecutors ended up bringing many of the attackers. It ended up going to trial. Is that correct? Um, what happened was actually I was subpoenaed to testify against the, the men who admitted the rapes to me because the prosecutor wanted to charge them with the rapes. And he wanted to use my, um, my notes and my interviews with the rapists as the basis for his charging those men with the rapes. And so I refused to testify. You know, I explained that I had told them that I was just writing a story to explain something to the public about why men raped in jail. I was not an arm of the state. And so it was a matter of conscience that I not testify. So he, the prosecutor didn't accept that very well. But when it... Because you're protecting your source, basically. Yes. But in Maryland, there was a shield law which said that I did not have a right to protect the source. 
So I, I could have been ch- charged with contempt of court. Actually, that was the next thing that was about to happen. But there were stories in various papers, not just the Washington Post, but the New York Times and other other papers nationwide that had written about how the reporter who exposed the rapes was about to go to the same jail that the rapes were occurring in. And people actually were calling the prosecutor's office saying that this was ridiculous. And so there was some softening uh, on the case of the prosecutor. And in the end, all I had to do was, I, I did appear before the grand jury, but I ha- and I had to explain why it was a matter of conscience that I not testify against these men. And then it was dropped. But what kind of Right before that happened, though, what kind of inner dialogue did you have to say or maybe what family member did you have to talk to? Because I can think that this is like I could go to jail for this story. So what kind of inner dialogue did you have with yourself to determine, you know what, I got to stand by my principles here? Yeah. So I really felt that I well, you know, my mother was beside herself because I was about to get married and she was imagining, you know, having to. I call all these people who had received wedding invitations and saying, oh, I'm sorry, Loretta's in jail. So uh, she did not want to go that route. So I I felt some responsibility toward her. But, uh, you know, I did have to explain to her that, um, you know, it really was a matter of conscience what I had told these men to get them to loosen up and talk to me and that I didn't feel that I would be able to continue doing any meaningful work as a journalist if I testified against them. And also that in just in general, people would be very afraid of talking to reporters. And it, it was just not a good thing. So we would just have to see what would happen. And outside of your mom, did anyone else disagree with your decision? No, my, my husband, future husband at that point, completely understood. And how about the people at the Washington Post? Were they supportive of you? Not really, but in the end, they didn't have much choice because I said, you know, this is a matter of conscience and I'm not going to do it. Because when you think about it as a journalist, all we have is our word. And if we give someone our word, I teach this in my journalism 101 course, as a journalist, you only have your word and your reputation. And if that's shot, then nobody's ever going to want to talk to you again. So there goes your career. That's exactly right. Was that part of your thinking? Yes, absolutely. And how did... The reaction to your story, do you think, compared with current conversations about sexual assault? Do you think it helped to have people be able to talk about it a little bit easier? I think so. Before, so the stories were published in 1982. And at that time, jail rape was something and prison rape was something that people kind of knew it existed, or they sort of knew, but I don't think there had ever been any absolute documentation of it. And certainly there had never been documentation of it occurring in a jail against people who were arrested for shoplifting and awaiting for trial. So this was really, you know, an absolute proof with even the the rapists admitting the rapes that this is what 
goes on. You know, it was all centered in one jail, but people could extrapolate that this is what happens. Um, So there was a lot of discussion throughout the country, actually, about, you know, here is the proof, here is the documentation, this is what's really going on. And, And I think it may have alerted other jails as well that, you know, they needed to watch out for stuffing the, you know, really hardened criminals uh, in cell blocks with people who were simply arrested on drunk driving charges. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and Fordham alum, Loretta Tofany. She's discussing her career, her more notable articles, and offering advice for young journalists. Now I want to talk to you about another one of your big stories. You wrote a series of articles called American Imports, Chinese Death, and it was about how Chinese factory workers were getting hurt making American products. So how did this story develop? That story developed actually in a strange kind of way. When we moved to Utah, I was... You and your husband? Uh, yeah, my husband and I and my three children. Um, we moved there for my husband's job. And for a while, I was kind of adrift. Uh, it was the first Not doing time. journalism? I, you no, know, you know. I had left my job at the Philadelphia Inquirer in 2001. And so this is what happened. I had been a foreign correspondent in China for four years for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I thought, okay, so... I speak Chinese reasonably well, and I know all about those factories. I'm going to start an import business. And so that's what I did. I started a business in Salt Lake City, and I started going back to China and going to the factories to purchase Chinese furniture and other things. And while I was in the factories, it it was quite extraordinary to me. I had a kind of access that I did not have during my four years there as a journalist. And so I was seeing things that I found really quite alarming. Like in the furniture factory, I saw, you know, men were spraying oil-based paint onto furniture without proper masks, like just with maybe at most a little surgical mask. But, oh, I thought, this this is really horrific. I knew that, you know, in the United States, OSHA regulations require um, much more than that, you know, a full respirator and a shield. And And I would think if you walked in and you're smelling this, there must have been some kind of reaction you had. Yes, I was like... And you were only there for a while, you know, (laughs) you weren't working there. I was gasping for (laughs) breath. And in other factories, there were other things, you know, jewelry-making factories, I could see that the little metal shards were just flying in the air. And all I could think of was silicosis. Where is your mask? And nothing. So anyway, I visited enough factories that I lost interest in that business. And all I could think about was these workers were going to die of these fatal occupational diseases. And I I didn't know at the time, where was there an OSHA? Was it enforced? But I just felt that there is something wrong with us importing all this stuff, creating billions of dollars of trade debt every year, while the Chinese workers are dying to make our stuff. I just felt this is not 
Correct. And attention should be brought to this situation. So I went back to China and I did the stories. I found the workers. They all had medical records showing that, in fact, they did have silicosis. They did have uh, their fingers chopped off because the machines were so old. They did have cadmium poisoning and their kidneys were failing. So I got their medical records. I got them translated into English. And I learned that there really was an OSHA in China, but just the regulations were not enforced because the whole emphasis of the government is make money, make money, produce, produce. So I put, pulled it all together in a way sort of similar to the way I did the jail rape series. And it became a a series that was published in the Salt Lake Tribune. And the Pulitzer Center in Washington, D.C. gave me travel grants and also the, the Center for Investigative Reporting in Berkeley, California also gave me some travel grants. And then the editors at the Salt Lake Tribune were wonderful. They worked with me to do the editing on the story and they figured out which of my pictures were best and they had their graphics department make charts and they did a really wonderful job. And you said at one point that there was, well, not said it, you, I read at one point that there was um, someone who wanted to start a helping workers uh, kind of get, they didn't really call it a union, and, and he was attacked. Yes. Or she was attacked. I don't yes. know if it was he or she. Yeah, Could you tell with me what machete. happened with that story? Yeah, what yeah. happened with that? So, you know, the, so there are very nasty things happen in China, not always in the name of the government, but the government sometimes has its enforcers. And uh, that person, so that person who wanted to start real labor unions was attacked, was chopped up with a machete, and he survived, but he isn't going to be in the government or way anymore. Yes. <laughs> so what a deterrent. Uh, yes, exactly. And China ended up enacting occupational safety regulations, I think, in 2002 that were almost as strict as those in the United States. Do you know why those weren't why those regulations weren't enforced? Yeah, they're not enforced because really the emphasis of the government has been to to get things done. You know, if you enforce the regulations, if you say, okay, we're not going to use this very old 40-year-old equipment that has no safety latches on the saw so that your finger doesn't come off when you're sawing. If you follow all that, it becomes quite expensive. And it's also time consuming. You have to buy the new equipment and the equipment is is expensive. And there's kind of a sense that we just won't do that. The government doesn't enforce it because they want to keep exporting and they want China to prosper. And they feel that the workers also prosper. And yes, some people get hurt, but you know, a lot of people are making more money now in the factories than they could make in the fields. So overall, to the government, it's an okay thing. It's the equivalent of saying, like, go to work, be careful. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So Loretta, were there any changes to policies or anything following your reports? Not really. Yeah, that was quite disappointing. I think 
the workers had a heightened consciousness. Certainly all the workers I interviewed and the workers who they talked to had a heightened consciousness of what was really going on and that they had not been protected in any kind of physical way, not with the right mask, not with the right equipment that would have protected them from getting silicosis or cadmium poisoning. They understood what was going on, but the government really did not try to do anything to improve it. How did you get the workers to talk? I would think they would be fearful. Yeah, so of course some of them were, and some of them did not talk to me. But many of them, most of them actually, um, did talk. I, I I went into China without announcing that I was a journalist, and I usually had some mutual friend set it up, you know, where we would meet and where we would talk. And, you know, I I explained that I was doing stories about all the occupational, fatal occupational diseases and injury and terrible injuries that were occurring to Chinese workers while they made American goods. And I just started asking them the very simple questions of what, you know, what did you make? When did you start working there? What kinds of protections did you use? When did you realize you got sick? Um, what did the doctor tell you about the sickness? You know, how long were you in the hospital? Do you have any medical records? Uh, can you get them for me for next time? With your investigative project, you did this without support of a newspaper. It took about a year. Was it easier to, because you did get some help from newspapers, you went to share that story, how you ended up getting even a little bit of funding, not from your husband. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So I, I went actually in the beginning when I had this idea and I really wanted to do the stories, I approached newspapers. Basically, they were, I approached a number of large metropolitan newspapers. And I always knew people at the newspapers and they knew me. But, you know, it was just not the climate for telling someone who was essentially a freelancer, yes, we're going to give you money to go to China and you can do these stories and they sound like wonderful stories. Sure, go ahead. That wasn't going to happen, you know, in the 2000s. A friend on one of these papers said, you know, you should try the Pulitzer Center in Washington, D.C. They're giving grants to journalists who have who have stories they want to do overseas. So I did that. I contacted the Pulitzer Center and... And I had a proposal, and I also talked to the officials at the Pulitzer Center about what I planned to do and how I planned to do it. And it, it was easy. They said, yeah, sure. Okay, we'll, we'll do it. So they gave me, I don't know, maybe $10,000 for the first trip, and I went. And that seems like a lot until you realize you were making almost $100,000 <laughs> as a journalist before that, right? Right. And also the 10000 was not for me for my salary. It was expressly for expenses. So their idea was that this was travel money. So, okay, this would get me to China. It would allow me to stay in some third-rate hotel for a month. I could travel within China. And Mind I could... you, it took you a year to do this project. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, you know, so, so this was travel money. And the idea was a newspaper would then publish the articles, and then the newspaper would would pay me. So initially, the newspaper that I had worked for for 14 years, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, had agreed to publish the stories. But 
the editor of the Inquirer who had agreed to publish the stories left and a new editor, Bill Marimo, came in. Bill was not comfortable with the fact that I was a freelancer doing the stories, even though I had been on his staff for many years. So that was another shot. door slammed. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I had I had done the series. I, I mean, I had the series was near completion. So I called an editor at the Salt Lake Tribune, who I had met previously. I had never worked there, but I had met this editor. And I asked if he might be interested in publishing the stories. I, I explained that, I, that they were written, and the Pulitzer Center had funded them, and I told him what happened at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he said, well, okay, um, why don't you email them to me, and I'll take a look. So w- within two days, he called me back, and he said, we'd really like to publish them, and we'll get you an editor, and we'd like you to come to the newsroom and do the polishing with her and bring your f- photographs, and, you know, we'll do the whole thing together. So I said, thank you so much. <laughs> That's wonderful. So um, in the end, as I mentioned before, uh, the Salt Lake Tribune paid me $5,000. The money at that point didn't matter so much. You know, I just, I had this story that I had spent my life on for a year, and I really wanted to see it in print. And so I did what, you know, I, I just stayed there in that newsroom, and I did what I had to do. And the editor, Lisa Karakavu, was fabulous. As we said earlier, that many media outlets really can't pay reporters for these in-depth, investigative, time-consuming stories, even though they're very valuable. So, Loretta, what do you think needs to be done to sort of help, help sustain investigative reporters? Yeah. So I think there should be that nonprofits really should step in and perhaps um, have a system where older and more experienced reporters can work with younger reporters. Because investigative reporting is something that usually you don't learn much about in journalism school. You know, it's, I I certainly did not when I was at Fordham. I I read the works in my communications classes of investigative journalists, but I had not a clue as to how I would begin to put such stories together myself. And so you really need somebody who can kind of work with you, especially for the first story or stories, to help you shape it and, you know, understand if you have all the documents you need, if you've done all the interviews you need to do, and to bring it together as a convincing whole. And you got a chance to work with some legendary journalists, Ben Bradley and Bob Woodward. Yes. What was that like? Well... Uh, Bob was actually, uh, sometimes he was very helpful. I had a number of editors who had no interest in the jail rape series, like none, and just did not want to give me any time at all to do it. And Bob saw that it was a good story. He saw it, though, in a different way. He saw it as a news story that I could pump out quickly. But he got the idea of it, that it was really an important story. And he actually told the lower editors to give me time to work on it. So that was, you know, What was he like as a person, Bob Woodward? He was, I don't know, he seemed always kind of, 
upper class to me. <laughs> what, <laughs> you do you, know? what do you mean? Give me an example of what that means. <laughs> so, I don't know. He had a yacht, and he just seemed to come from a different, you know, he had gone to Yale, and he, he seemed to Come not off have, refined? Yeah, he, he just didn't seem to come from as scruffy a background <laughs> as Loretta from Fordham, <laughs> you know? I, I just always felt like I had grown up in a tougher way in the Bronx than he ever did in his nice Midwestern home with his lawyer father, you know. And and that's actually how I felt about most of my colleagues at the Washington Post who mostly came from Ivy League colleges. You know, at the time, I mean, Fordham's a wonderful college, and now it has even better ratings than it did back in 1975 when I graduated. But at the time, I really had the feeling of being kind of the, the tough kid on the block. You know, I was like a minority that no one was quite acknowledging, but I was because I certainly didn't go to Harvard or Yale. So you went to Fordham. I went to Fordham. <laughs> I grew up in the Bronx. I spent a lot of time, you know, in those fire hydrant waters. And, and the summer know, heat. In the summer heat, <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, it was a reality that uh, most of these folks had not encountered. <laughs> yeah. But by but on by the same token, I, I also felt that that gave me certain strengths. You know, I just always felt like I can do this. So I can talk to these armed robbers and convicted murderers. You know, we're from the same place. I grew up on those same streets and they knew it. They sensed it too. So it was very easy to make connections with them. And the same thing with the jail, with the people who had been raped. I, I had lived on the streets enough that the rapport was always easy. So, so I feel grateful to Fordham and to growing up in the Bronx for that. I'd like to thank my guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Loretta Tofany. You can listen to Fordham Conversations every Sunday at 6 o'clock. You can find us on Facebook and also on Twitter or at WFUV.org. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>